Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. You know, when I think about Christian missionaries working to convert people to their religion, I never really stopped to think about the target group being Native American Indians, and yet that most certainly happened. And there's a very intriguing story about it that we're going to look into in this episode, centered in the Litchfield County town of Sharon, and it involved the rather obscure religious sect known as the Moravians. With me to discuss it is Warren Prindle. By trade, he's a professional artist from Sharon. His family, though, dates back numerous generations in town, and he's taken an interest in the Moravian story. And now, when Indian culture and Christianity met each other in Connecticut. I was absolutely amazed to learn about the story of the Moravian missionaries in Sharon, Connecticut. First off, because I had no idea the Moravian church was the first Protestant church. I'd always thought it was Martin Luther nailing his demands against the Roman Catholic Church onto a church door that had kicked off the Protestant movement. Well, that effort was in the 1500s, but 200 years before that in the 1300s, a gentleman named Jan Hus was born in what is today the Czech Republic, and it was Jan who started the Moravian Church, which started the Protestant movement. Of course, if you're going to be the first person to oppose the Roman Catholic Church's teachings after nearly 1,400 years of unchallenged dominance, you're going to have a pretty rough go of it. And that's exactly what happened. Jan started voicing his opposition to certain church practices in his sermons in Prague. Well, that didn't go over so well with his fellow priests, and they appealed to Rome. And there, Pope Alexander excommunicated John. But the enforcement of the excommunication was never very strict, and Jan kept preaching. It wasn't until the next pope took office and the negative sermons continued that tougher enforcement occurred. Jan was invited to come to a special conference of bishops in Germany and air his grievances. But when he got there, of course, he was instead arrested and thrown in prison. After two years, they gave him a chance to recant his views, but instead made the famous quote, I would not for a chapel of gold retreat from the truth. And with that, Hus was burned at the stake. As he stood dying, Hus was heard singing psalms and making claims that God would bring forth other reformers to continue his efforts. Well, sure enough, about 70 years later, Martin Luther was born in Germany, and with him the Lutheran Church was begun, and the Protestant movement took off in earnest. Well, 300 years after Jan Hus was executed, the church went through a revival of sorts, and this was at the hands of a German Moravian priest named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. And von Zinzendorf decided to pursue the conversion of as many Native Americans as possible. So in 1740, he and some of his close followers took a boat over to New York City and then went out to Pennsylvania where they set up their headquarters, where it remains to this very day. Von Zinzendorf then led a team into western Connecticut, where he was warmly received after speaking with members of the Pagusset tribe in New Milford. From there, a mission was established in Sharon, and from that base, three Native American tribes were approached. The Shikomako tribe in Pine Plains, New York, the Scaticokes in Kent, and the Waquanic tribe in Sharon, right on the border with Millerton, New York, on what is today called Indian Lake. Well, the outreach mission we're talking about here just covered 15 years, from 1740 to 1755, but it was a significant period in the history between American Indians and European settlers. 
Warren Prindle's family has had roots in Sharon for many generations. By trade, he's a professional artist. He's also, though, a keen student of local history and one who knows the story of the Moravian missionaries in Sharon. Warren says that missionaries who tried to convert Native Americans in general often made the same mistake. Many missionaries to Native Americans, almost all of them, made the common mistake of associating Native American culture with paganism. They did very little to respect indigenous ways, and they were concerned about the message, you know, Jesus loves you, God loves you, there's a hope of heaven, etc., etc. But in hindsight, they should have been much more aware and, and not confused Indian culture for paganism. So then you have all the nightmare of forced conversions and Native Americans being forced to speak English and wearing pants and, you know, all of the whole thing. But the Moravians didn't make that same mistake. They embraced Native American culture. From the Sharon Base Mission location, a man named Henry Roush was sent the short distance to the west to Pine Plains where he met up with the Shikomako tribe. And that effort would not last as long as some of the others. It was interesting when you look at it, uh, there seemed to have been three sort of different pockets. The tribal uh, presence in Pine Plains, New York and Dutchess County. Then there was uh, the group in Sharon. Uh, and then, of course, the Catacokes in Kent. Now, is that uh, basically, as you understand it, there were those three different uh, areas? Yep, that's correct. And particularly in the group, what is now called Indian Lake, that was a from what I understand, a thriving uh, Native American community there because it was sort of an ideal location. You had the water, you could fish, you, you know, you had the mountains, you had the fields. To have their uh, functioning society, it was, it was an ideal place. Now, what's interesting to me, the New York authorities took uh, not so kindly to the movement, sort of forced them out, persecuted them, passed some laws, said that uh, this is not something you should not be intermingling with Native Americans, and they were a little suspicious as to what their objective was. That is what I understand, yes. And a little of the ecclesiastical background, some of the authorities, the church authorities at, at that point in New England, the predominant church was the Congregational Church. Here again, you have that odd cycle of leaving the, the old world to find freedom in the new world, and then you set up a group of uh, rules, and then you have them saying, no, you can't go uh, interact, you can't evangelize the Native Americans, because we aren't in agreement with that. So it's that odd historical <laughs> cycle. We want freedom, we're setting up for freedom, uh, but now you can't have freedom. In Sharon, the Moravians were led by a man named David Bruce. Now, he was a native Scotsman who had become a Moravian and come to North America. He formed strong relationships with the Waquanic Indians, and in fact, the two groups lived together in the tribal community, learning from each other. Well, historical records indicate that Bruce converted 20 Native Americans into Christianity, and a monument was erected to him over his gravesite by Indian Lake. The monument was built, interestingly enough, in 1859, which was 110 years after he died. More importantly, Warren says that the monument to David Bruce is the last remaining physical reminder of this unusual chapter of historical significance. What can you tell me about him? What have you heard some of the stories about David Bruce? He was gifted at preaching and uh, had a concern for the Native Americans. 
And the reason I focus on him is uh, not only the impact, but obviously the monument that's there now. Uh, the, the Moravian authorities, more than 100 years after his death, uh, come back and say he was so prominent and so influential that we're going to build this monument for him off, uh, I guess, Route 361. That's correct. That's correct. I think his legend was well due. It wasn't a case of uh, them saying, hey, let's take this minor guy and lift him up. I, I think he truly was the real deal. And uh, I've never seen it, but I know there's another monument in Pennsylvania as well, and yet a third one and somewhere else in New York State. But I'm most familiar with the one that's on the uh, New York-Connecticut border. So the monument was put up there in uh, 1859, I guess it was. And it was memorializing both David Bruce and the gentleman Powell from England who had succeeded him for, I guess, two years before he passed away. And it's now on, I guess, private property east of Indian Lake. Is that the case? Yes, and it's actually very, very close to the New York-Connecticut state border. In my youth, so we're talking the early 70s, it was well-maintained by the people who owned the property there. And I think because it wasn't often visited, I don't think it presented uh, an intrusion on their privacy. I probably made, you know, five trips there in 10 years, you know, and it was nicely kept. But sadly, that's not the case today. For the average tourist who's just driving through Sharon or maybe a newcomer who's just moved into town, other than the lake that's called Indian Lake, what other signs are there that would point to uh, the Moravian presence back in the uh, 1700s? Well, if you're looking for the Pacific Monument, you're going to need a machete and a compass <laughs> and, a, and a Sherpa guide <laughs> because it is so overgrown. Sharon is laid out as is many New England towns on a with the green in the center, which of course at the time was where you where the handful of houses uh, faced so that you could put your animals out on the <laughs> on the field in front of your house so that they would be protected from wolves, bears, marauders, etc. So it's kind of nice that we still have that legacy right in our hometown to this day. But if I understand the, the direction of your question, to find the specific monument is difficult. And are there other indicators in the area? Not really. I suppose another way to ask the question is, what is keeping the history of this alive? Do people in Sharon know this story, or is this going to fade out from uh, view in in short time? You know, uh, you ask, uh, that's such a precious question that's so meaningful. After 50 years, people's memories fade and people pass on. Uh, you know, we're just a generation away from, from losing history. I've taken my children there who are now adults. Sadly, uh, you know, there's just a few history buffs or Protestant history buffs or, or missionary-minded folks who know of it. Now, obviously, you weren't around in 1859 when they built the marker there, but uh, some of what I've read says that there were 1,700 people there for this service with, I guess, the traditional Moravian trombonists and sermons and whatnot. Uh, what can you tell me about that particular ceremony? Well, I'll put it in the context of the time. A few years before that, in Sharon, the Protestant or uh, evangelical preacher, George Whitfield, 
preached on the, the town green that I was mentioning before, and it says he spoke to a great multitude. I understand it was in the thousands. My point is, it was not uncommon for a major ecclesiastical event to uh, to get a large group of people, uh, because that was sort of the nature of society then. Well, now we're in the 21st century, and it's been 150 years since that monument was first erected. It's on private property, though, right on the Sharon, Connecticut, Millerton, New York border, right on Indian Lake, on a rise that looks over the lake. Just recently, Sharon native Ray Akshar graciously drove me to the spot where it's located. Now, it's on private property, and that's kind of a sore spot for a lot of Sharon people who say that they wish that the monument was on a public piece of property so the people could see it, visit it, and understand its importance to the history of the area. Well, nevertheless, when you just stand there and look at the land and realize it used to be a thriving Native American tribal encampment, the solemnness is not lost on you. Well, today, the Waquanic tribe is long gone. There's only the Scaticoke tribe remaining in all of western Connecticut. They live on a roughly 400-acre reservation on the west side of the Housatonic River in Kent, Connecticut. up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. You know, you might want to take a ride by Route 361 in Indian Lake on the Sharon, Connecticut, Millerton, New York border. It's a beautiful area. And just to sit down and understand that that was where a thriving Native American community used to exist. Of course, I wouldn't try and find the monument that's on that rise overlooking the lake because that is on private property and you don't want to get involved with that. I do want to thank the people who helped me put together this episode, Warren Prindle for all of his insights and amazing knowledge, and Ray Akshar for driving me around the area and explaining to me some of the history and background as well. If you like this show, make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll be notified every time a new episode is launched. Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and please stay healthy.